to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, everyone. I am your host, Lee Johnson, and today I'm joined by my two fabulous co-hosts, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Charles Peterson. Today we're going to be talking about style, something that I have zero of, but my two co-hosts have in spades, (laughs) because we think this doesn't get talked about as a serious topic often enough, and not just style in the sense of fashion, but literary style, philosophical style, styles in art and film and music, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we do that, as usual, we're here at the hotel bar, and so I want to get my co-host's drink orders and find out what you guys are ranting and raving about this week. So Charles, what are you drinking? What are you ranting and raving about? You know, because I feel like there's revolution in the air, I'm going to go with the old-fashioned Cuba Libre. You know, a little bit of rum, a little bit of Coke, a little bit of lime keeps you in time. So that's my my (laughs) drink. My rant today is horror films. I don't really get it. Why people want to have the shit scared out of you as if the reality isn't problematic enough. And I say this specifically because I recently watched the new film Nightmare Alley, the, the Bradley Cooper film, and I watched it. It was brilliantly acted. I love the, the work of Del Toro, but the fucking end woke me up at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night <laughs> with real panic and night sweats, and that never <laughs> happens to me. I'm not going to spoil it for people that haven't seen it, but what's the point of that? So that is my rant. Horror, why? I want to 100% co-sign on that on behalf of all the Frady Cats out there in the world, (laughs) of which I am one. Charles, don't you think horror films are just white people shit? Oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I got enough horror. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Every time I drive to Indiana by myself in a car at night, it's a horror flick. Yeah. And I don't need a monster. They're human monsters I'm scared of. But, you know, white people, you, you do you. My rave this week is the burgeoning bravery of college professors. I know I talk a lot of shit about some of the decisions on the part of the Tennessee or Alabama or whatever southern reactionary states legislatures, especially around CRT legislation. But in the states of Tennessee and Alabama, the Washington Post reports that college faculty are beginning to fight back against this assault on knowledge and common sense. So I'm really proud of those faculty members who are signing on and putting their name and their reputations and their hearts where their minds are. So congratulations to them. And I hope this movement spreads. Here, here. What about you, Rick? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? Since it's still winter time and mighty cold here in Chicago, I'm going to stick with a drink that warms you from the inside. I'm going to have a classic Rob Roy. Mm. Noelle told me she's an expert in the classic cocktails, and so I'm drinking a Rob Roy. And also a fan of Liam Neeson. Oh, I love that movie. (laughs) (laughs) My rave this week is the podcast Things You Missed in History. They just did an episode on Lucy Parsons that came up after they did an episode on the Haymarket Affair, and it was a really great episode, and I think they do some really great work bringing some really important but overlooked topics in history to our attention. 
Yeah, Lucy Parsons was a badass. Oh, she was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My rant this week is the TV series Lost. <laughs> it's a flashback episode. <laughs> but here's why it's current. Because I realized that Lost has now ruined me for any TV series that has a little bit of mystery, a little bit of weirdness that Lost started out with. Because now, like, I watch a couple of episodes of a series and I'm like, damn it, is this going to be another Lost? I can't get invested in another Lost. There better be answers. <laughs> what do they call them? The term is like the what's in the box type of show. Like it's yeah. a, like yeah, an enigma yeah. within the mystery within, yeah. the, you know. Yeah. And Lost blew that for, I think, all of them for me. You know, what about the damn polar bear? What about the polar bear? <laughs> we all want to know. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about? Well, I am going to, again, stick with my usual Noel. I'll have a Fireball and Diet Coke. I am ranting this week about robocalls. <laughs> You know, I feel like this is one of those things that it's like the weather. It's like, eh, it's not really worth bothering to rant about because it's just an annoyance. It's just a part of life. But I don't know if you guys remember this, but three years ago now, Congress passed legislation that mandated that telephone companies put an end to these things. And the deadline passed, I think it was last September, and I'm still getting them and they drive me batty. So yeah, it just seems like something that we should be able to do something about. I do want to slide in a, a rave inside of this rant though, which is that the technology for stopping these robocalls that the major telephone companies are being forced to adopt, the technology is actually called Stir Shaker. Oh. It's an acronym. It's okay. like stir slash shaker. Yeah, yeah, it's an yeah. acronym. So I thought that that would pique our hotel bar interest. But Lee, your car warranty is about to expire. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we have yeah. a whole discussion in season two about not answering calls from people that you don't know right. or numbers you don't recognize? It is a very rare occasion when I answer the phone ever. Yeah. Uh, but it's just the fact that I see it on my phone, you know, and I, uh, it just drives me crazy. And we should be able to stop those. So I am raving this week about my brand new Oculus Quest 2. <laughs> have become fully immersed into the world of virtual reality. My partner and I got a Oculus Quest 2. I absolutely love it. And I think that people who complain about VR just haven't put their head in an Oculus Quest 2 yet because it is so amazing. I find it impossible to believe that anyone wouldn't be really impressed with this technology. So if you are out there and you are playing on the Quest 2 or similar platforms, look me up. I'm usually on Beat Saber or Space Pirate Trainer. And yeah, my handle is Lumja, which by the way is a nickname that I got when I was a teenager working for Malco and they used to put our initials on the employee schedule. So mine was LMJ. People used to call me Lumja. So that's who I am in the virtual world. But I love the Oculus Quest 2, and that's what I'm raving about this week. All right. So Rick, you were in the hot seat today, uh, appropriately, because you are extremely stylish. Uh, you were in the hot seat today to talk about style. So how's this going to go? What are we going to talk about? Well, I thought of this because I was telling one of my classes this term, 
that before the pandemic, I actually used to think about what I would put on before I came in the classroom. And there was something about the pandemic that just sort of made me give up. And when I was talking with them about it, they're like, you know, well, so why don't you just be comfortable? And and I'm like, well, because I feel like I'm losing a part of myself or at least a way of presenting myself. And so that got me thinking about style, first of all, in terms of clothing, in terms of how we dress. And then the more I started thinking about it, I started thinking about style in all sorts of different ways, style in writing, philosophical styles, musical style. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought this is a really interesting question. And all of that started from the fact that I seemingly gave up on having style. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit that I also put on quite a bit of weight during the pandemic, and so... Same. <laughs> yeah. And, and so my clothing choices currently are not as large as they once were. Um, <laughs> not as wide? No pun intended. Well, I, until... I love that. Oh my God, I love that formulation. See, the problem is that my clothing is not as large as it was. Right, exactly. I, that's so affirming. That's so body positive. There's nothing wrong with me. My clothes are fucking up. That's right. That's right. My clothes are fucking up and they're, and they're ruining my life. Um, but so I'm, I'm sort of remembering a past I used to have and the enjoyment that it brought me to think about what I'm going to wear, what the occasion is, what's appropriate for the occasion, and what I'm saying to the world. You know, since this is an audio podcast uh, listener, I'm right now wearing a tuxedo. <laughs> I really do think that when it comes to, to dressing and maybe other accoutrements, that style is really important ways in which we signal to one another who we are and who we want to be. So if I'm being completely honest, I think that in the arena of fashion that I have zero style, I have often said to people that I would prefer if I could wear a uniform. Like if I had like, you know, if I if there was a uniform for my job, I would prefer to wear a uniform every day than have to worry about clothing. And if I'm just dressing myself, it's almost always that I'm going to be in a hoodie and jeans, which is, you know, not a style. It's just, it's just about comfort. Wait, I, what are you? Okay, Rick's face is exploding over here. So go ahead and interrupt me, Rick. First of all, I refuse to acknowledge that you don't have a style. You do have a style. And therefore, I, I think we need to distinguish between style and fashion. When I say you do have a style, there is a Lee M. Johnson way of dressing that is really identifiably Lee M. Johnson. And I, I think within that, you put together things really well to sort of maintain that sense of constancy and the image that you're projecting to the world. And I think that's what I mean by style. Not that you're wearing couture and people are coming up and, and saying, Lee, who are you wearing tonight? <laughs> right. Lee, how are things at Fashion Week? Right. I'm pretty sure that what Rick just told me is that I do have a style, but it's unfashionable. But that's fine. Uh, what I'm going to say is that I suppose maybe I need you to tease that out a little bit more then. What is style? 
when it comes to our presentation of ourselves in things like clothing, jewelry, shoes, like that sort of thing. So here I can find no better authority than the famous British philosopher Quentin Crisp. (laughs) He referred to himself as the, I mean, he's no longer with us, but when he was, he referred to himself as the oldest living queen of England. Um, (laughs) He was a dandy. And he's the subject of both the book and the movie, The Naked Civil Servant. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget Sting's song, Englishman in New York, is dedicated to Quentin Crisp. Oh, I did not know that. That song is about Quentin Crisp. Oh, that's lovely. Quentin Crisp is one of my heroes in many, many, many ways. But anyhow, in an interview once, the interviewer, and this was on NPR, was not sure who the hell Quentin Crisp was. And and so <laughs> he acknowledged, like, he's, he said, why am I interviewing you? And he said, oh, my God, darling, that's simple. It's because I'm famous. <laughs> and, and the interviewer said, okay, but why are you famous? And he said, it's because I have style. Mm. And then the obvious question came, well, what is style? And he said, style is being yourself, except on purpose. And I think that's what I mean when I say style, is that... You are being yourself, but you're thoughtful about it and you think about what this says to the world about you and what you want to say to the world about yourself. You're hitting upon a couple of points that have been ruminating in my mind, which is the relationship between self-awareness and intentionality and where style, and you know, to some degree we can talk about fashion, but certainly style fits into that. And My first thought is that if one is intentional and self-aware in in the presentation, then there's an affectation about it, which may undermine a certain authenticity. But it sounds like you're saying, and this is, I, I like this because this is so like mercury, so hard to get a real handle on. But it seems you're saying that you can be intentional, you can be self-aware, but it can still be authentic and can still be for the self, not necessarily for recognition from others. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, one thing I think about is, sorry, but, you know, this episode is probably, at at least in this first little bit, going to go deep into my closet. (laughs) I I probably have, I'm not kidding, maybe 400 pairs of socks. And socks are things that people who see me almost never see. And so why do I care about what my socks look like? how they coordinate with my outfit or they don't. And that's something that really is just for me. Like it matters to me that my socks are both interesting to look at and fit with the outfit I'm wearing. So that is something I'm not being fake about that because it it really in the end is just for me. And by the way, I don't think this has to be expensive. And here's where I would distinguish between style and fashion again, is that fashion normally revolves around name brands like Gucci or Dolce & Gabbana, and that shit's expensive. That's really expensive, and that's actually not style. And if I could quote Quentin Crisp again, um, I don't remember exactly how this goes, but he says, fashion is what you wear when you don't know who you are. Mm. And so fashion is a way of accepting an agreed-upon popular mode of dress and taking it on as if it were your own, when in fact it's not. And so I think one can be stylish and and incredibly authentic in the sense that you want to project an image both for yourself, and it could be aspirational, I want to be this kind of person, and then also for the public. I do my hair toss, check my nails, 
I like this idea of intentionally performing a version of yourself in, for example, the clothing and accoutrements that you wear. I don't like the idea of it being authentic or inauthentic. And I'll tell you why is because I don't think that there is a true me, right, that I'm performing or not. The performance is the true me as it's being performed. And so in that sense, I suppose I'm, I'm largely, this is really helpful. I'm largely agreeing with both of you that now I'm getting a sense that, yeah, okay, style is this intentional performance of myself, which of course I do in many, many ways in the way that I speak, in the way that I write, in the way that I interact with others, but also in the things that I put on my body right. that other people can see. And sometimes the things that I put on my body that other people can't see, by the way, Rick, I also do have a very strong sock game, uh, <laughs> So, uh, but I, I would want to disconnect that from authenticity because that would seem to me to sound as if we're suggesting that there's like a really true you and that to have a style is to somehow perform that really true you when it seems to me that what style is, is just the performance. But I'm wondering if what you were describing earlier as fashion, if that's really a matter of what sometimes we call taste, which is different than style. Well, first, let me speak in your style for a moment. I agree with you 100%. Um, <laughs> and, and authenticity is not a concept that I'm ever really comfortable with in all contexts. I hate it in an existentialist context. I especially hate it in a Heideggerian context. And for reasons you point out, I think there is no distinction between performance and reality, even when it comes to who I am. Going along with that, one thing I've noticed about you, Lee, is that I would say you have a style when you're either at home or like here when we're recording the podcast that is different than the style I see you wear. Well, I've never seen you teach, but at least when you give papers, you have a different style. And I think that goes more to your idea of a mode of performance, that yeah, we yeah. perform different roles in different contexts. And it's not like right now when you're here, you're not, you know, a teacher or a philosopher who could present something, but you perform a different role. And I think style is really helpful in both helping you perform that role, but also marking for others, I'm taking this role right now. You and Charles both, I think, in your more public personas are both of you are quite dandyish in your own ways. <laughs> You're both extremely stylish, and there is a bit of a dandy to both of your styles. I mean, the truth is, is that all three of us are looking at each other right here now on Zoom, and we're all wearing sweats. And I don't know, I don't know what y'all are wearing below the screens, but I mean, you know, I've got very comfortable pajama pants on here. <laughs> I'm not wearing anything. Charles, do not stand up. Do not stand up. <laughs> Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philo spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson, 
the doctor's abbreviated, and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. I like this conversation because it's challenging me because I am fairly ambivalent about the idea of authenticity. Mm -hmm. I do have the same sort of concerns about it speaking to some sort of inherent core truth about a being or a circumstance or an event. But at the same time, I, I want to think about authenticity as the moment where someone says, no, this is who I am, mm. right? This is who mm. I want you to understand me to be. Right. So I think authenticity yeah. can have that problem, but authenticity can also be a real functioning or characteristic of someone's self-conception. That, But I also like the fact that style becomes the way to express, and I think this is closer to what, what Lee was saying, the manifold circumstances of one's self-awareness. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's not an essential, but there, there are multiple ways that we can be, and style can reflect how we feel about ourselves at a particular moment in time. So me presenting at a conference in a particular sort of dress. That's that's very self-conscious, but that's who I feel myself to be right. when people are hearing me present, as opposed to when I decide to go to a wedding or I'm in church. So these are all aspects of myself that I'm invested mm -hmm. in that for me, that that's the authentic part of it. But also see that authenticity and performance are not necessarily in conflict. You're anchoring authenticity in the intentionality of the performance. And so the only way in that sense that I could be inauthentic would be, and I'll just use an example in my actual life, like you will never see me choosing to wear a skirt or a dress. If I was in some situation where I thought I absolutely in this situation have to wear a skirt or a dress, I would have a style, but it would be totally inauthentic. It would be something that I would, had not chosen. Is that a fair reading of what you're saying? Yeah, it is. It very much so is. It's not inauthentic because it's not the true me. It's inauthentic because I'm not truly choosing it. But here's another example of an authenticity that is not related to like a real me who I am independent of performances. When I was teaching at Penn State, one of our undergraduate students went to, I believe it was a Nirvana concert, and she bought me a t-shirt and she bought it as a joke. And she's like, I bought this because I can't imagine you wearing a Nirvana t-shirt. And I went home and I thought, you know what? I am going to rock the shit out of this. And so <laughs> I put on some jeans. I took my work boots out of the closet. I didn't tie them all the way up. So the tongue was flapping open. I took a flannel shirt. I tied it around my waist. <laughs> Meow. <laughs> As a 90s girl, that, that's hot, Rick. <laughs> and I came into the classroom and the students were like, what happened? What is going on? But I was really authentically grunge. I, I mean, I owned the authenticity of the grunge look. And that undergraduate student, still, she's in the profession, and, and every time I run into her, she still remembers that. And she is so happy that like she brought that into the classroom. I have a funny t-shirt story as well, which is that once I was at a thrift store and I bought a black t-shirt with white block lettering on it that said, this is not a Fugazi t-shirt. Now, you guys know me and anyone who knows my musical interest knows that I have never been to a Fugazi <laughs> concert, <laughs> but I used to wear that t-shirt 
interestingly, as a kind of joke on my own style, like this is never anything, like I would have never gone to an actual Fugazi concert and bought this t-shirt. First of all, I would have never gone. And second of all, if I was there, I would not have bought this t-shirt. And so weirdly, I was wearing it authentically as a kind of commentary on my own style, you know, like an ironic commentary on my own style. So it seems that what Lee is describing, I agree with completely right. She was being authentic to her sense of mockery of this particular (laughs) band and the genre of music. Whereas Rick, you were being authentic in terms of this is how someone who is invested in grunge culture presents themselves down to the T, but that wasn't sort of authentic to who you are. So there's a separation between the appearance, right? The stylistic choice in and of itself having a validity versus whether or not that extends to you and your sense of self and projection into the world. And and you raised there, Charles, a really interesting point. And by the way, to go back to Lee's, this is not a Fugazi t-shirt, I can imagine you at a Fugazi concert about as easily as I could imagine you in a skirt. <laughs> <laughs> The mosh pit is not my home. (laughs) (laughs) But I once heard a paper by the philosopher Alexander Neymas, and he never once talked about style. The, The paper was more about what he called, well, taste, to go back to something Lee raised, and, and I completely dropped the ball on that question. But he was arguing that our aesthetic tastes, and aesthetic may be a little bit highfalutin there, because it doesn't necessarily mean like our tastes in art, like music and, you know, architecture and so on. But it could also be the way we design our houses, the, the more practical aesthetic dimensions as well, that these are actually in a way the basis of a friendship that mm. we become friends with one another on the basis of our aesthetic tastes to the point where if I were to come in and say, I'm trying to think of a musical example that would be so out there. Um, If I were to say that I really love, well, that's all true. Um, (laughs) Well, grunge, grunge might be it. If, If I told you that I really love grunge music, I think one or both of you would say, what? That's weird. Mm -hmm. And that's because we're friends that aesthetic challenge you make to me is a really interesting moment, I think. Mm-hmm. I honestly have not heard you make positive reference to anything recorded, written, or performed after 1972. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying. I'm just, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I'm just saying in my memory, I have not heard you say, hey, did you check out that recent Beyonce? No. He's None like, Megan that. the Stallion is my game. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's my jam. <laughs> Although I did, I did come to Miley Cyrus's defense in one episode. Can That's right, you did. Like That's right, you did. This discussion about grunge style and other kinds, I I think punk would be another example where there is definitely a style of dressing that is punk. And what's interesting there is that in both cases, it's a musical style, but then also a style of dress. And I'm wondering, is there a thread, as it were, that sort of links the grunginess of the style of dress to the grunginess of the music, the punkiness of the music to the punkiness of the dress, 
and so on for other genres uh, or styles of music. So I'm wondering if maybe what might link all these styles together is what the kids today call a vibe, right? <laughs> and I'm actually wondering about what the difference between a style and a vibe is. Because I think also, as you said in the earlier segment, you know, when you say like a vibe with someone or this vibes in a certain way or somebody has this kind of vibe, it also is a way of relating yourself to whatever you're talking about. But then when you just ask the question that you asked, which is what is the relationship between the musical style of funk and the fashion style of funk? And we could even say like the dispositional attitudinal style of a funky person. It does seem like they all have the same vibe. Do you think that in that case, like vibe and style are synonymous? We'd say like, oh, they all have the same style because it, it does seem like they're different a little bit to me. Well, so <laughs> your question reminds me of Often one of our graduate students will say something to me like, oh, in my dissertation, I'm working on Derrida, but I'm trying to understand Derrida th through Deleuze. And I'm like, that's like saying this image is really unclear. So I'm going to hold it up to a funhouse mirror. <laughs> so if style is something that's hard to pinpoint, I think vibe is perhaps even harder to pinpoint. But here's one thing I will say, and I, I know Lee would not have asked that question if she doesn't have all this charted out in various Venn diagrams <laughs> with the definitions. <laughs> You guys just think I'm just like laying traps for you all the time. <laughs> Aren't you? Right. I know you've got a whole layout behind the purple curtain and it slinks to this and you've got Well, pictures. you know, just sitting here like petting my cat and sucking on my pinky like Dr. Evil. <laughs> you've got your unified field theory of style already worked out. Okay, sorry, go ahead. But one, one thing I will say, and this goes back to another episode, um, namely our episode on bars. I think one of the things we didn't say, but Lee, when you just said vibe, different bars have different vibes. You walk in and sometimes more immediately, sometimes less immediately, you, you sort of get the vibe of this bar. And I'm not sure I would say that that's the style of bar it is. And, and I'm not sure how I would distinguish that, but I think mm. vibe is a larger category than style. I'm thinking about vibe as sort of what's the emotional resonance or the emotional energy mm. that a person or a place or an event throws off. So I think that a style can be a manifestation of a vibe, but it's not necessarily so. I think you may have moments where stylistic choices sort of split off from the mm. vibe, right? Mm. But they still may coexist in an interesting way. So I think about punk. I think punk is a perfect example of where a style and a vibe unite because it is this emotional tone. It is generational sense. It is this rejection of this more standardized way of being and music as well, right? So it's a consciously violent clash right. in terms of, of stylistically and the vibe as well, if there's anything to the stereotypes we now hold of punk musicians and punk culture. But I think if you say something like a funk style, and I'm not quite sure there's a funk style, but let's just say, right, maybe there is, if we go with the the dress oh, of some wait, of the wait, musicians. Wait, 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 wait. So 
a dude walks into your classroom wearing like six inch platform heels and you're not thinking that's funk as shit. I would say that's 70s as shit, which means it could be a, a range mm. of music related stylistic choices. So funk can be James Brown. Okay, so let's say he walks in wearing a diaper and a top hat. <laughs> no, but I would say, but then this is someone who's emulating a specific character from a particular musical group. So it's related to the, the narrative of funk that's being told by George Clinton and P-Funk All-Stars, but it's not funk in and of itself. Funk is right. So you can have James Brown, it's funky as hell, mm. but you were not going to see James Brown in like a diaper and a top hat or the time, right? Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, those guys were funky as hell, but those guys took on this really interesting sort of baggy pants, pointed toe shoes, double-breasted jackets, and fedoras. But I think that we would say that their music is in the style of funk and their fashion is not in the style of funk. Right, or I'm but saying... that's not to say that there isn't a fashionable style of funk. I just don't think that we can talk about that there's a funk style, right? Aesthetic style. Music, obviously. Well, they're definitely music. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, I mean, I mean, sartorial. Let me be clear, because right. right. But that's what I was just saying. Yeah. I was like, I was saying that, yeah, that in the examples that you gave, we would say Ray Charles, the style of his music, some of it anyway, is funk. It's in the style of funk. His fashion is not in the style of funk. For sure. But that is not to say that there isn't a fashion style of funk, sartorial style of funk. Like, for example, George Clinton has it. Mm, not sure. Because I guess when I say that we, we can say there's a style, to me, that sort of speaks to a particular singularity. There's a, the, a single type. So when we talk about grunge, that pops into our head automatically. When we talk about punk, we've got a look in our heads. We say a funk style, sartorially speaking. Eh. Yeah, I did. I have a look in my head. I, I have a look in my head, too. But but your point, though, I think is well taken and really interesting. I mean, is there something about the style of music that doesn't open itself so much onto a sartorial style? I mean, we could look at other examples. Reggae. Is there a sartorial style? I think there is. Here's the thing about reggae. I would say that we associate it, but that's really a Rastafarian look. But because we associate Rastafarianism automatically with reggae, we think having dreads, smoking a lot of weed, that automatically makes you a reggae star. I'm not saying that from what I've seen, a, a large uh, majority of those artists don't participate because they do. But it's not necessarily, right? You don't necessarily, if you're a reggae artist, have to be appearing that way or making those stylistic choices. Okay, so now I see. So I think we all agree with that. I think that we all agree right. that the styles that we associate with certain aesthetic forms, we're using music here, that the styles that we associate with them don't necessarily have to coincide with the fashion style of the artists right. or whatever. But that all of us, if we said somebody was dressed like a reggae artist, we would know what they meant. Somebody was dressed like they were in a funk band, we would know what they meant. Even if, of course, there are plenty of funky artists that don't dress that way or plenty of reggae artists that don't dress that way. So I think that that's the distinction. But one of the things that you're kind of bringing out for me, and sorry to get back to the vibe and style thing yeah. here, uh, but one of the things that this conversation is bringing out for me is that Maybe it's the case that vibe is the milieu in which worlds are built and style is the milieu in which subjects are built or performed. Yeah, perfect. And perfect. Or understood. That's really yeah. interesting. I yeah, like perfect. That. I love that. Absolutely perfect. Because, I, you know, since Charles brought this point up, I've been thinking like, can you imagine Patti Smith in whatever, 1972, doing her music 
in an evening gown. <laughs> and, and then what that got me to think about is, could there be a punk vibe at, for example, the Kennedy Center Awards? And I think there could be, even when everyone's in a tuxedo and wearing evening gowns. And so I think that sort of gets to the vibe as the world, whereas the subjects are not constituting themselves as punk. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I don't know if this is going to be a reference that everyone is familiar with, but there was an episode of 30 Rock where Tracy Jordan paid a symphony to only perform the Sanford and Son uh, theme song like over and over and over. So like all these people showed up at the symphony and the symphony just kept playing this like loop of the Sanford and Son thing. And that's a kind of interesting example because, and that song's a pretty funky song, yeah. right? Even when played by a classical symphony, right. it still sounds funky, right. right? There's a situation where it's like, okay, nothing about the vibe here is funky, but the style of music that's being played is funky. Yeah, great counterexample. Oh my God, what episode is that? I have to go find that now. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> Listeners, just a reminder that there's a lot of different ways that you can keep up with our conversations here at Hotel Bar Sessions. We're on Facebook and Twitter, of course. We also post each of our episodes to our YouTube channel every week. And you can, of course, subscribe and rate and even comment on our podcast on whatever podcasting platform that you listen to. But the most important way that you can support us and the way that we would really appreciate is to go to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions and consider supporting us with a monthly pledge. We've got several different levels of patronage that you can sign up for from as low as $4 a month to much higher than that. But we especially are looking for people to support us at the designated driver level on our Patreon page. So again, that's patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. We really appreciate you. We really appreciate you listening to us. And please tell your friends. Now back to the episode. I have another question about style in the sense that you could have a style that is contrary to the actual facts. I don't know. This is a weird sort of question, but I'm going to give you an example. Hopefully this will clear it up. So I am a not tall person. I am five foot three and one half inches. (laughs) However, I often say to my friends and my partner that I don't experience myself as being a short person. As a matter of fact, it's only when I see myself in photos with other people that it's kind of shocking to me that it's like, I'm really short. But when I'm existing in the world, like I never have the sense that I'm looking up to talk to people. And my mother used to always make fun of me because when she would say, describe a person, I would say, you know, they had dark hair, they were wearing a brown jacket, they were about my height. And she says, you describe everyone as about your height. And like, no one, is, no one is about your height. So, you know, because this happens so often, at some point, one of my old best friends, Dana, said to me, you know, the thing is, is that you just have a style, which is like, live tall. 
Like she's like, mm-hmm. you're not tall, mm-hmm. but your experience of the world is that you're tall. That's why it's shocking to you when you see photos of yourself and you actually realize that you are quite short. So I wonder if there can be styles that are in a way aesthetic in the sense that they are building the world as you actually experience the world, but are entirely stylistic, right? Like they're not based in, in this case, physical facts. Short people got no reason. Short people got no reason to live. They got little hands. Well, I think that's one of the things I find most interesting about style. And, you know, this might apply more when we talk about style in writing, but I often think about this criticism that, like, someone is more style than substance. And I think, Lee, this gets to your point about authenticity is, like, that substance part there is saying, well, that's not real. And I want to say, when, when we talk about performance, it, it might be at best like layers of an onion. So you peel back this style and all you're going to find underneath is another style. And you peel back mm-hmm. that and you're just going to find another style. In a way, what you're getting to is, you know, your, your tall person's style is real. Whether the physical dimensions of the world and other humans in relation to you are not such that you are about the same height <laughs> as everyone else. Your performance is as a tall person. And and I think in a way, that's what all styles do. I mean, Char- mm-hmm. Charles has been to my house, so he just said he doesn't remember me talking about a recording made after 1972 and my house is designed or decorated (laughs) as someone who would never listen to anything past 1972. (laughs) It's like art deco. It's like, (laughs) it's swanky. Yeah. Frank Sinatra would be very at home in my living room. Very comfortable. Very comfortable in your living room. So, Rick, when you said that thing about how people make a contrast between style and substance, I think this is one of the things that I know you did want to talk about in this episode, was this idea that we talk about style as if it's a accident of a person and not the substantive part of a person. Because in the example that we're just talking about now – I agree with you. I think that in my actual life, living as a tall person, or at least as not a short person, right, is more substantively true in my life than it is an accident or a sort of stylistic add-on. It's not an accessory of my life. It's how the world is actually understood, how I understand myself, how I relate to other people. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly because I think that this distinction between style and substance is not dissimilar to, for example, the distinction between form and content. And Mm -hmm. I think we've seen enough arguments to call into question the the distinction, for example, between form and content. I, I mean, anyone who reads Plato for long enough comes to realize that there are things that go on in these texts that are performed, that are actions and, you know, a guy walks over here or someone touches someone's head or so on that are not outside of the very content of the text itself. In other words, the dialogue is the form, the style dialogue is also the content. 
Yeah, and going back to Charles's rant for today, horror movies, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but you know, I've seen on YouTube a lot that people will take a normal scene from a non-horror film and will put some creepy music underneath it and, you know, slightly lower the tint of the frame and then have a kind of jump scare moment in a scene that is otherwise not at all scary. You know, it's like from Titanic or whatever. And it suddenly becomes a horror movie. So I do want to call into question whether style, to use Aristotle's metaphysical vocabulary, whether style is just an accident, that it's something incidental. And and this might go back to this question of authenticity as well, right? Because in order to say that style is like, it doesn't matter, you could still be you and not have that style relies on the fact that there is a real you there and that all these modes of performance are just heaped on top of the real you. And that's something I just want to reject for a number of philosophical reasons. But that also entails that we take style more seriously than normally we would. If I said something like, I don't feel like I could be myself if somebody puts me in a skirt or a dress, would you say that that's because I'm being forced to perform a style that I just don't have the skills to perform or that I haven't chosen for myself, but not that there's a real me that's getting in the way of me performing this style. Well, or maybe to go back to Naamas's argument, maybe the real you is just the particular connection of various styles that you perform in various ways. And that taste is something like, this is a style that I do not choose for myself. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, for some reason I'm thinking about this in terms of style manifesting something about a subjective experience, and I feel like I want to think about it comparing it to language and how a language defines an object in the world, links the two together, but then different languages will define the same objects in different ways. So, perfect example, in the Ghanaian language of, of tree, which is the Ashanti language, they don't have a word for fish as we understand fish, right? Like an aquatic animal. It, the translation becomes meat and water. Mm. Interesting. So it's still the same type of object, but the way in which they're, through their language, through their stylistic choice of expressing this particular thing, it says something much more interesting or something very different about this being. So I want to think about styles as having a similar type of effect or approach that it adds something unique, something special, something very distinctive, but still talking about a fundamental sort of being in the world. As a Derridian and in the style of Rick Lee, I wholeheartedly agree (laughs) that there is nothing outside of the text. So yeah, if we're thinking about about styles as like a text, as like a way of translating the world and making a world meaningful, yeah, that's a great, I love that. I I love that too. And I think it hooks up nicely. Do you 100% love it? One, I I 100% (laughs) love that. And it, it hooks up, I think, in interesting ways with Lee's original argument against the use of the word authenticity by raising the notion of performance and performativity. And when you first said that, Lee, for obvious reasons, the first thing that came to my mind was Judith Butler. And Mm -hmm. there's an interesting thing, both, I think, in Charles' example of language, and if I think about Judith Butler's notion of performativity, here particularly in relation to various gender identities, 
that there is not something and then I perform it. The performance is the something, and yet in the performing, there is something, right? So I'm, I'm not just performing nothing. And, and so there's this really interesting relation between, to use maybe a general term to tie all these together, the expression is at the same time making the very thing that is being expressed. Yeah, I mean, I like this idea that we could say that nothing has any meaning without language for us. And we might say nothing that is meaningful exists without a style. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip, keep it under two minutes please, to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. So Lee raised Derrida, I I mentioned Butler, and then this question that Charles raised about language, it raises to me the question of, is there such a thing as philosophical style? Is that different than traditions like, to say, analytic philosophy or feminist theory or pragmatic philosophy? Those, Those are traditions. But are there, in addition to those, or maybe as part of those, are there also philosophical styles? I mean, my answer is 100% yes, there are (laughs) philosophical styles. I think that it's hard for me to describe how they're different styles, though. I mean, I can point to kind of specific things in the text that they read, in the questions that they ask. So in the United States, anyway, we usually refer to two different styles of philosophy, analytic and continental, which really should be called European. But obviously the training is the same. The history is the same, despite the fact that what rises to the level of important history is very different between those two. And in some cases, the substance of the questions that are asked are the same, but the manner of the questions that are asked is not the same. The style in which they're asked, the style in which they're answered is definitely not the same. To me, it seems that when we talk about philosophical styles and you make the European or the continental versus the analytic, it seems to me that's methodology. Like the method is the style. I mean, if you're going to think about it that way, analytical thinkers think about and ask specific types of questions that are very different from the the types of questions that continental or European philosophers ask. So that's a methodological question. That does not mean that that's not a stylistic concern as well. I I think it's both. The method and the style are the same thing. So that's the first thing. But when you say, is there a philosophical style? At first, I was like, no, maybe it's just philosophers within particular schools who speak and think in a certain way, but within the framework of a certain set of concerns. But then I was like, no, they're philosophical styles, right, well, without a doubt, in terms of being connected to a school, because you think of the language and the, the method and the style of German idealism. That is a very distinct way to approach a question and to inscribe one's questions in a narrative. And, and I think that if there is such a thing as philosophical style, 
it's actually independent of the style that a particular philosopher uses in their writing. In other mm. words, I, I think yeah. that Derrida, just to use an example, is a philosopher whose writing style is readily identifiable. And I think for mm. anyone who's read like a couple of Derrida texts, you could pick up any text and if you don't know who the author is, your suspicion is going to be, this is Derrida, they're unmistakably Derrida. But then there are other writers within, let's say, the deconstructive tradition who are clearly philosophizing in the style of deconstruction. And I like mm -hmm. the way both of you put it, that might start with the way of asking questions, not just the kinds of questions you ask, but just the way of asking questions. And I'll tell a story about this. I was once invited to speak on a panel at the Eastern APA for the Society for Medieval and Renaissance Philosophy. And I gave this paper on the medieval history of the notion of causa sui, a thing that is cause of itself. And I didn't mention Derrida. I didn't mention Heidegger. I didn't mention Foucault, Butler, Irigaray. But from the moment I opened my mouth, everyone in the audience knew I was not an analytically trained philosopher. And boy, did they go after me in the question and answer period. Because what they, mm. they thought that meant was, you don't know your shit, and so we're going to attack you. And I got proof texted. I got all sorts of really crazy attacks. But there must have been something to my style that mm -hmm. indicated... I'm not an analytic philosopher. And so I do think there is a, a philosophical style. Yeah I, yeah, I know when someone's an analytically trained philosopher just by how they speak, like the words and terms they use, you know, well, this premise A. Lots of acronyms. Yeah, I mean, and I, I can hear it. I have good friends of mine who are trained that way, and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that's what I didn't get in grad school because you're the way you're approaching and even talking about this thing is very different from how I would talk about it. Yeah, I also think that, speaking of graduate school, that there are a lot of people who come up in traditions where they sort of come into themselves, they come into their own voice, first by mimicking the style of another philosopher mm. or mimicking the style of their philosopher uh, only because Rick mentioned Derrida before. I mean, this is one of the things that really frustrates me about Derridian scholarship is there are all of these Derridian philosophers whose first language is English who write in English but when you read their stuff, it reads as if it's been translated from French. <laughs> and badly. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, that, that it's clear that they're just trying to mimic this style. You know, if since we're just naming names, I think that this is also true of a lot of other philosophers where the style of writing for that philosopher was very important or for that philosopher style was very important. I'm thinking of people like Nietzsche, thinking of people like Rousseau. Yeah, I mean, Foucault. You know a style we need to bring back? Spinoza. That's a style we need to bring back. The geometric style. <laughs> I, I would I would love that. I used to experiment with aphorisms for mm. a while, right, because mm. of my investment. That sounded so personal. I used to experiment with aphorisms. <laughs> <laughs> I was aphorism curious in college. <laughs> I was, aphor I was aphorism curious. <laughs> but there's also the question of personality, if we're going to talk about style and the way in which personalities can come through the writings. Because I think one of the thinkers that I was like, oh, my God, I wish I could write like this, but I never had the courage to try to write like that because it would feel pretentious, is Fanon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
right? You could feel the energy and the passion and the drive and the the intensity mm -hmm. of his ideas. I mean, you could see him sweating as he's putting these things to mm -hmm. paper. And I thought, yeah, this so defines him, but it also is so reflective of the topic, the need for the freedom of mm -hmm. this particular group of people, the, the need to liberate ourselves from this particular political, gym, you know, whatever constructs. So I, I think there's also a question of personality, like the subjective sort of approach to this as well. But then, then we run back into the problem that it, is there a personality outside of these various styles? And I think perhaps there isn't except as a kind of coming together of different styles. So one thing I will say is, as a middle-aged white man, I have recently, only recently, begun to think, you know what, I'm going to write the way I want to write. In other words, up until that point, if you read any of my work, you wouldn't hear me, or to use a word that I think you used earlier, Charles and Lee also, you wouldn't hear my voice in that writing. But recently, I've thought, you know what? I'm going to write the way I want to mm -hmm. write because this is my voice. That's a style of writing that I find is much more my style than any of the styles of writing I was writing in previous to that. Stephen Biko will be very proud of you. The South African activist, his, his great collection of essays, I write what I like. Yeah, I think I have a lot of respect for philosophers whose books read like when I've had conversations with them. For me, the yeah. preeminent example of this is Charles Mills. If you read a Charles Mills book, it is exactly like sitting down and having a conversation with him. He writes exactly as he talks. I think that my former dissertation director, not he, he's not former, he's not dead, uh, Jack Caputo, also does this. Reading his books are exactly like talking mm. to him. That's a kind of style. And it's not about trying to be like Charles Mills or trying to be like Jack Caputo, but trying to right. have a way on the page that is the same style as myself in person. That's something that I really think I aspire to. I would add Del McWhorter to, to that list. I think her writing style is just as she is in person. And may I say, Lee, you came very close to saying style is being yourself except on purpose. Yeah, I did. Well, I think that just saying that the style that I choose when I write to be the same style that I choose when I speak, which is not right. to say that there's a real me that they're both authentically representing, right. but just to be consistent in my intentional stylistic choices across domains. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to throw bell hooks in there. And I, I loved her device, her method of transcribing conversations that she would have with people. And I think those writers who have that pure openness where their speaking voice is their writing voice, there's an amazing level of self-certainty about that person. Mm that they so trust what they think and how they think it and how they say it and how they organize it, that it's seamless from the brain to the mouth to the page. And I think that's really the question. This is how this is what we're moving for. This is the pure style, to go back to Quentin Crisp, right? The self-certainty of who you are. And for writing, I think the difficulty that we have is, at least I'll speak from my own experience, I am constantly pre-editing and I am my own worst critic. And so from my head to my mouth to the page, between head and, and mouth, when I'm talking, almost always that filter is off. 
as soon as you put the page in front of me, <laughs> the filter comes back on and it says, how do you know that? You can't say that. Where's the mm -hmm. evidence for that? Did you read that somewhere? And mm -hmm. that makes it incredibly difficult to get something on the page. And I think when you talked about, for example, hooks, I, I'm, I'm with you that there is an incredible certainty about the style there that is really impressive to take in. All right, you two dandies, this has been a great conversation about style. And, you know, we say this a lot just between the three of us that sometimes there are these episode topics where just sitting down to start recording them, you think, I have no idea what I'm going to say about this. This was definitely one. And I actually feel like I have learned a ton in this episode. So thank you so much, Rick, for this. But got to wrap up here. Noelle is making last call. So while she's going to get our last drinks, any final thoughts from the two of you? Well, I want to thank Rick as well for this topic. And I'm like, you, Lee, I, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to say or how I think about this. <laughs> and this has been such an amazing experience. And I want to say that what I'm realizing is the most powerful example of this are the moments when the quote unquote substance and the style become one. Mm. And that may be mm. the ultimate goal if one thinks about if one is intentional or one pays attention to this thing called style. Uh, thank you both. You know, this is obviously a personal interest of mine. And I wasn't sure going in whether it is philosophically, theoretically interesting. I'm going to think an awful lot about style and performance and style and language for a long time. And I'm just happy that we finally give the philosopher Quentin Crisp his due. Lee, what about you? You know, I mean, like I said, it, it's just not something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I think I will be more conscientious about not only my own style, but recognizing style as a substantive matter in my world. And yeah, as Tim Gunn says, I'm going to make it work. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it looks like we don't have a designated driver to get us home. By the way, listeners, designated driver is one of our levels of patronage on our Patreon account. So if you would like to be our designated driver, go to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. And we will definitely give you a shout out if you subscribe at the designated driver level. There are other levels that are cheaper and more expensive. So definitely check that out. But since we don't have a designated driver for today, which one of you guys is going to call a cab? I got this taxi. And if you can't afford to be a designated driver, you can ride in the cab with us. Once again, shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.